This podcast is an excerpt from the book Path to Navalagala, written by Katrina Mitchell. Episode 2, 1997, Chile. I got back together with my boyfriend and was working for him and his family trying to adjust to my new reality. John was kind and good-hearted. He fostered my love for travel and didn't want the Mexico City incident to prevent me from going abroad again and following my dreams. I met him when I was 16 and he was 25. He owned an internet cafe close to my house and I stalked him at his workplace until he would agree to go out with me. I was determined back then and felt that I could do anything I put my mind to. Although our age difference wasn't acceptable, our connection felt completely natural and it was the healthiest relationship I've ever had. He also steered me on the right path and was instrumental in shaping who I am. He was straight edge, didn't drink, and was an educated, intellectual entrepreneur from a prosperous, welcoming large family. Soon after we met, I decided to do a summer study abroad program in Chile. It was expensive, and my parents said they couldn't afford it, so I wrote a series of essays trying to get it partially funded, which I did. When I told them we would only have to pay for half, they gave in. I was scared, but conquered my fears one by one. I flew myself to Miami and found the AFS group in the airport. We stayed in a hotel with a bunch of other students, about 50, for three days, all going to different locations in Latin America. We attended cultural training and seminars. Then I flew to Santiago, Chile, where I met another group of 10 students. For two days, we stayed on a small farm on the edge of the city, doing more language and cultural trainings. We were all going to different parts of the country. Some of the other host parents picked up their exchange students, but mine didn't have the money for the trip. I was going to the small town of La Calera a few hours away. Some random guy I hadn't met before put me on a bus and said, Get off in La Calera in two hours. I swallowed my terror but rolled with it. The bus itself was culture shock. Chickens were running around people's feet, and vendors walked up and down the aisles trying to sell people things. Of course, people would come up to me and wouldn't leave me alone, trying to show me their products. I didn't understand what they were saying and wanted to be invisible. Finally, I made it to my destination, and my Chilean mama and sister were standing at the deserted bus stop for me. They seemed nice enough, and we went to their small house in the town. In Chile it was winter, and I froze as I tried to put on my tights and jumper uniform on for school in the small concrete drafty house early in the morning. Breakfast was always tea, fresh bread with mashed avocado. No plates, just wiped down placemats with a chatter of conversation among my host mom, sister, and grandparents that I couldn't understand. They stared at me like a foreign specimen, analyzing me. 
I assumed they were talking about me, but I couldn't be sure. I had been enrolled in the local high school of about 150 kids and was required to take 13 subjects in Spanish. I walked to school with my sister, who I eventually learned was a bitchy diva. She wore the same jumper as me, but with squared, high, girl Healy boots, and swayed her hips as she walked in front of me the entire way. Her only interest in me was improving her popularity, and when she found out that my Spanish was terrible, I was pretty much useless to her. Not only did no one speak English in the town, on my first day of school, I was reprimanded in English class for correcting the teacher. I felt isolated and overwhelmed by the experience. Back home in Newport Beach, I was an introverted outcast with almost no friends. My social skills were awful. Why did I think I could do this, especially not speaking Spanish? During recess, the girls would sit and chat, and the boys would play soccer or ping pong. I couldn't understand enough Spanish to hold a conversation, so I decided to watch the boys play ping pong. They played a five-point game, and the winner would stay on the table. That morning, one boy was dominating everyone. He was short and agile and jumping around the table, returning impressive shots. First game, five to one. Second game, five to three. Fourth game, five to two. Fifth game, five to zero. Everyone cheered, and he bragged, dancing in place, if just to say, in your face. I took a deep breath, and not swelled in my throat. I cleared my throat and blurted out, Perdón! The group of about 20 people standing around the table glared at me with surprise. Can I play, I said. Everyone laughed. Girls don't play ping pong. I said in a timid voice, I do. The boy looked at me and motioned for me to approach the table. I stepped up to the table and grabbed the raggedy paddle in my hand. At that point, half of the kids at recess noticed what was happening and gathered around to see what was going on. I can hear them whispering and snickering in the background. I'm sure they were thinking, who is this mysterious American girl who hasn't talked to anyone all week and is now challenging the best ping pong player in school? I widened my stance and looked at the boy in the eyes, indicating I'm ready. I held my breath. In what appeared to be slow motion, he hit the ball with a lot of top spin, and the ball flew to my end of the table so fast I can hardly see it. I flung my paddle out, almost as a reflex, and returned the serve almost by accident. He was so surprised I returned it, he wasn't ready, and it blew right past him. I served next with a little spin, and we rallied for about five minutes. We ran from one end of the table and dove to the other, as we turned the most difficult shots we could muster at such a quick pace. As we took turns serving, the crowd hemmed and hawed at each close call. It was four to two when I was winning. I couldn't help but smile with excitement. The boy had an intense look of focus on his face, like losing to me would be the most humiliating thing in the world. We hit the ball back and forth for a long minute, and then my return hit the tip of the edge of the table, causing it to immediately hit the ground, making it impossible to return. Everyone stood there in awkward silence, looking at the boy in disbelief. Time seemed to stand still. I could feel my heartbeat. Boom.
boom, boom. I stared at him, expecting him to have a total fit. His serious expression suddenly turned to a huge smile. He ran over and hugged me, squeezing me, lifting me up like we were old friends. Everyone cheered and laughed. Alvaro was my first friend in Chile. We played soccer and ping pong, and I started hanging out with him and his friends, the cool troublemaker group. Some girls belonged to that group too, and I became close friends with them as well. My Spanish slowly got better each week, and I felt like a changed person having a group of friends for the first time in my life. I thought, maybe there isn't something wrong with me after all. Perhaps it's those superficial Newport Beach people who are the problem. As I embarked down this road of self-discovery, I was also curious about boys. Our house was on a small orchard, and I often sat under a tree, writing in my journal. I documented every day in detail, trying to make sense of my surroundings, and it kept me sane at a time when I was unable to have a full conversation with anyone. One day, when I was sitting in the backyard, a guy named Oscar came over and went to introduce to me as a family friend. He was tall and handsome, college guy. He spoke more English than anyone I had met, and he asked if he could take me to a movie. The only movie theater was in the next town, but my family said it was okay. We zoomed off on his motorcycle and went to the neighboring town, which was slightly bigger, with a lot more fun things to do. His goal was to sleep with me, but I was adamant about only making out. At the time, I thought it wasn't cheating if I didn't have sex. And I was on a different continent anyways. As I started hanging out with him more, I realized all the girls seemed to know him. I later found out that he was the town playboy, and I had pretty much given myself the reputation of being a slut just by being seen with him. He increasingly became unstable and frustrated that I wouldn't sleep with him. One day, he took me to a pristine lake outside the little town. It was surrounded by green rolling hills, horses, and beautiful trees. We hung out there for a bit, and then he insisted on taking me to his university, which was several hours away. I told him I couldn't go, and he refused to take me back home. I was filled with fear. Then I thought, why had he brought me here? There's no one around, and he could easily just rape or kill me. He stared at me with an intense look of anger and a hint of evil in his face. He walked towards me as if he was going to grab my arm and attack me when we heard a man fifty feet away. There was a large tree tipped over that had been hollowed out from a fire, and the man walked out to see what was going on. Oscar Solomon stopped in his tracks. I said a little prior to God in my head for saving me in that moment. I realized I had been a fool for trusting this guy. I didn't even have my passport on me and very little money. Inside I was panicking, but on the outside I said, I must remain calm. I must look calm. Let's go. We can get lunch in the next town. I followed him with hesitation. We zoomed off on his motorcycle, and I looked at the beautiful green rolling hills on each side of the highway with cows and horses grazing. We stopped in the next seaside village at a cafe for some sandwiches. He said, When I am done with college, I want to join the military police.
I was horrified. Pinochet was a brutal dictator who ruled Chile between 1973 to 1990 and was still in charge of the army at that time. The massive human rights violations of the military and police were well known and among the worst in the world. Inside I was thinking, who is this monster? I asked Oscar, why do you want to join the military police? It will provide a lot of good opportunities for me. I thought, I must figure out how to talk myself out of this horrible, scary situation. I said, I don't have much money for the trip, so I need to go back home to get some more. I was counting on the fact that he was short of money also. He said, Okay. When we walked into my living room, my Chilean mom announced, It's time for dinner, and I had to stay in. I was safely back home and felt stupid for being so naive. I avoided him for the rest of my stay. Before leaving for Chile, I had read James Redford's Celestine Prophecy, which had become the basis of my spiritual belief system. There were many profound insights throughout the book. However, there are a few that stuck with me. First, that there was no coincidences and that there is a spiritual design to all things with a purpose. Secondly, that there is energy between all of us which can be given or taken. This energy can be positive, negative, or even sexual. The book talks about different controlled dramas that people use to take others' energy, leaving them feeling drained. More enlightened people increase their energy by being in a loving state, eating plants, and doing various positive things. After learning to be in touch with the energy around us and getting rid of those bad control dramas, the ultimate goal is to use our intuition to act on meaningful events in our lives that appear to be coincidences, but are not really coincidences. That random guy saved me that day, and there were many more brushes with death throughout my life. I didn't know if it was God's plan, or a guardian angel, or that my life was meant to have some higher spiritual purpose. All I knew is that I felt grateful and filled with love to have the gift of life, and a relatively good life too. I focused on spending time with my Chilean family and friends, and there were a lot of extraordinary things that happened which I struggled to understand. For example, one night there was a bunch of people playing loud musical instruments in the street outside my house. I watched them through the window as the neighbors gathered, sang, and brought out guitars, drums, tambourines, and played them in the street. My mom said, let's go next door, and we went across the street and the front door was open with lots of people going in and out. In the middle of the living room was a coffin, and people were sitting around the edge of the room, eating, talking, laughing, crying. It looked like a great party from the outside, and I was shocked to see what was going on on the inside. With few exceptions, almost everyone in La Calera was poor or lower middle class. People mostly survived on bread, local tea, and avocados from their orchards. The large meals for lunch were often potatoes, veggies, fish, or meat occasionally. There were almost nothing to do in the town, and people pretty much only had each other. In La Calera, there was a huge hill with its name on it like the Hollywood sign. Everyone was real proud of that sign. It had white block letters about eight feet tall. My friends and I would hang out there and watch people make out. 
I did like a boy at school, but his dad was the local priest, and hanging out with me, the town slut, would be bad for his reputation. We did become friends, though, and we did visit the hill a few times. In the small town, your reputation was everything, and people often put on false facades. For example, it was illegal to get a divorce in Chile at the time. My family was perceived to be a mom and a dad and a son and a daughter. However, in reality, they were actually separated, and the father and son lived in Valparaiso, while the mother and daughter lived in the countryside. We went to go visit the dad one time in Valparaiso, which is a large city on the coast. It was a golden Sunday afternoon, and the city was bustling, and we walked across a huge set of hills that had large gray communist-style projects on them, about ten stories high. We took a short trolley up the steep hill and walked to his set of buildings. There was about six clustered together, creating an open area in the middle where people could gather. The buildings were orange from the reflection of the sunset, and local guys were playing guitars in the cottonwood area. Their beautiful music echoed off the walls. Clotheslines hung out the windows, and paint was chipping off all those walls. I had never seen such terrible housing in my whole life, but the place still had this amazing magical feel to it. We were on our way to his small apartment, which was packed with lots of people loudly talking, drinking, eating delicious food. Everyone was just so welcoming and friendly. The summer was coming to an end, and I had fallen in love with La Calera and my friends. My girlfriend Alejandra and I walked through the finest avocado orchards in the town on Sunday afternoons. The golden sun shined through the trees. They were ancient-looking aqueducts and beautiful farmhouses with large porches that overlooked the tree. Wealthy people that stayed in Valparaiso owned the orchards and were rarely there. I dreamed of retiring on an orchard, sitting on a porch with some Chilean wine, fresh bread, and avocado, peacefully overlooking my trees. It was like a scene from that movie, Walk in the Clouds. My friends threw a party for me on my last night at Elro's house. The outdoor garden was turned into a nightclub with lights and food and loud music, alcohol, lots of dancing. We had a blast, and I knew that I would miss them terribly. I promised to keep in touch and return, but of course I never did. I wouldn't have a close group of friends like that again until 15 years later in Uganda. Chile, as my first experience living abroad, awoke the cultural awareness in me. I'd felt like an awkward teen in the halls of Newport Harbor High, in the sea of beautiful people who looked like Ken and Barbie dolls. I wasn't rich and didn't look like a model. I was average-sized and middle-class, but I knew my mind was far from average. I had a thirst for adventure and a desire to change the world for the better. I knew that I couldn't achieve great things without dreaming of them first, and Newport was a small corner of the world that I no longer needed to take so seriously. From then on, I was going to travel as much as possible, do everything in my power to grow as intellectually, as fast as I could. I now understood that I didn't need to allow American 
culture to define me or restrict my perception of myself. If those stuck-up Newport Beach people didn't get me, then fuck them. I was going to follow the beat of my own drum. This podcast is a production of Cultural Junkie Press and an excerpt from the book Path to Navalagala, written by Katrina Mitchell. Thank you to Arsenio Ndiv for the music and Danny Vashnahan for lending his voice to this episode. <laughs>